Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Toby Lishtig, the TLS Fiction Editor, and in this special episode of the TLS Podcast, I'll be talking to Douglas Stewart, the winner of this year's Booker Prize for his novel, Shuggy Bane. Stewart's book, his debut, is a beautifully tender, tragic, funny and unflinching portrait of life on a 1980s Glaswegian housing scheme and of the relationship between an alcoholic mother and her three children, in particular her youngest, Shuggy. It was described by this year's Booker Chair, Margaret Busby, as destined to be a classic. And if anyone was ever in any doubt about that, then this Booker win will surely put pay to that. Douglas joins me on the line now. Hello, Douglas. Hi, Toby. How are you? Yes, I'm good, thanks. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I would imagine it has been quite a frenetic uh, past few days. Yeah, it's, it's certainly been very busy. Do you know the minecart scene from Indiana Jones? Yes, I do. A bit like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I guess particularly, I mean, people must have been asking this the whole time, but particularly strange to have this momentous win at a time when you're probably stuck on your sofa half the time. That's right. I mean, everything this year has sort of felt like it's been happening to someone else because it's happening through the screen. And so it was such an amazing day on Thursday. I didn't expect to win. I'd spent the past couple of months uh, immersed in the work of the other writers that were on the shortlist because I wanted to be so present, as present as possible in the moment, thinking, you know, I might never get here again. You know, you never know. Uh, and so I wasn't expecting anything on Thursday. I wasn't expecting to win. And it's just taking a bit of time to settle in because it feels everything feels so distant. I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, let's let's talk about the book itself. So, um, Shuggy Bane. Firstly, I'm sorry about my pronunciation. I'm not going to try and do a Glaswegian accent, but if I say Shuggy, <laughs> is that okay? That's pretty good. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm just going to say Shuggy, but with my sort of flat London brogue or whatever it is that I've got. Um, so, <laughs> Shuggy Bane has been described by you as a Thomas Hardy novel set in Glasgow. Um, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I don't know if it's a Thomas Hardy novel as much as uh, one of the biggest influences on my writing has certainly been Thomas Hardy. Um, I wanted to look at something that swept across Glasgow. It's a love story between mother and son uh, as they're struggling to survive in 1980s Glasgow as the city is sinking into 26% unemployment all around them. Uh, but Agnes Bain, who is the mother of the family, is a bright, beautiful, proud, 
generous mother. But after she's cruelly abandoned by her husband, she begins to descend into addiction and alcoholism. And it's her youngest son, Shuggy, who stays by her side the longest and loves his mother and tries to save her from her from her fate. And I think it's that question of fate and doom and also how uh, in Hardy's work, Tess is sort of uh, formed and passed and used by the, the, the things that happen to her. Um, Agnes almost is too. She's kind of tossed around in in the winds of the time, and uh, we, we it sort of echoes some of what I feel about Tess. Yeah. So these sort of these marginal figures, aren't they? Who are central to your narrative, and Shuggy himself feels quite sort of different and other and marginal within within his own community. And I guess uh, Agnes as a woman is is marginalised in this very patriarchal society, but also because of her own struggles to kind of keep her life in order, she is also on the kind of periphery of things. That's right. I mean, it, here's a mother, like many mothers in the 80s, who had so much ambition and dreams and wants, and society would give her nowhere to put them um, as a working-class woman. Uh, and so at the first half of the book, we almost see her as being too much. She's seen by the characters around her as being too much, almost exhausting. Uh, but actually, she's not too much. It's just the world around her is not enough. <laughs> um, and Shuggy as well, as you say, has, is dealing with his own sort of form of uh, isolation because he's very quickly deemed no right by the people around him, which is a very Glaswegian blunt way of saying, what's wrong with you? Why are you like this? Uh, but he is an effeminate little boy. He's precocious because... His entire universe is his mother, so he's around, you know, his. he learns everything through her. Um, and he's othered very quickly by the boys and the men around him. I mean, and you talk about fate. I mean, it's interesting because uh, although we follow Shuggy through his childhood um, into, into his early adolescence in this novel, there's actually a prologue, isn't there? A short prologue uh, mm-hmm. in the beginning in which we see the teenage Shuggy. Obviously, something's gone badly wrong. He's living alone in a bedsit. He's being taken advantage of um, by his boss, a delicatessen, and he's being sort of perved on by this creepy fellow guest and he's he's very much you can see he's a victim but already at this stage you can see this resilience it's a kind of polite resilience but it's definitely a resilience and I just wonder what, what to what extent you think this is a novel about surviving I think it's absolutely a novel about surviving and actually Shuggy opening with the question of Shuggy and his own fate I wanted to frame then Agnes's choices and what she does throughout the book and all of the things that Agnes does and Shuggy does, and even uh, halfway through the book, we see that Agnes's mother had to make some very difficult choices about surviving, um, is really looking at when the chips are down or when things are hard, people do what they can to get by. And there's a dignity in that, although sometimes it's difficult to look at or maybe to process if you've never been in that situation yourself. None of us know what we would do until we're sort of faced with the headwinds or the troubles that, that the Bain family face. Um, but I also wanted to show Shuggy in that situation because then it, I hoped it increased his compassion for his mother as we watch her go through her journey throughout the book. Um, because I think the big one, hopefully one of the themes in the book is empathy as well and how the characters relate to each other. Hope is central to the book, but it's not always a big sort of shining horizon or a big, sometimes in literature, it's a very glowing thing in the far distance. And I think that hope for many people who are maybe struggling or having a tough time is just the ability to get up every single day and face another day and get up again the next day and face another day and keep going. That is a hope. It's a 
it's a small glimmer of hope, but it, uh, but it's a very powerful thing. You absolutely see that in the character of, of Agnes, who you know, however however bad she is, and in whatever bad state she got in the night before, she will get up, she will apply her lipstick, won't she? She'll get dressed mm. and she'll, you know, exit her house looking like the best dressed woman in the you know in the community. As you say, those kind of just the sort of the hope, the hope and dignity is is really central is really central to this. There's also the idea of escape, isn't there? So I mean, Agnes herself, she kind of she wants to better herself. That's how she ends up on on the on this on the scheme, which kind of happens mm. about a hundred pages into the novel, I guess. And then you've got um, you know she's got three children. Obviously, it's it's primarily about the relationship between her and her youngest Shuggy. But you've got her her oldest daughter Catherine and and the middle child Leek, and they both try to get away and I just I wondered if you could talk a little bit about about that sort of the desire to to escape and transcend in the book absolutely At the beginning of the book we see Agnes and her husband and their three children uh living with Agnes's mother and father in a high-rise tower block in the middle of the city which at the very beginning of the 60s seemed like the cure to all the city's ills and we now know that uh these were very hastily made and they've since been torn down it was an actual real tower block how called Sight Hill. But Agnes longs for a front door of her own. She wants a garden for the kids to play in. You know, it's still a council house, but she just wants uh, a home of her own that she can be incredibly proud of. And her husband uses that opportunity to move her to this house, but also then to essentially maroon her or leave her. Uh, because he says in the book, she is such a beautiful, precious, rare thing. He couldn't bear the idea of someone else coming along into her life. Uh, and mending the pieces and and being with his wife and so it serves his ego he's a very cruel man in that way but he says he, he, he doesn't he say something along the lines of he, he just wanted to see if she would do it and you know and, he, and having tested her and found that she, she came with him that was enough and he could sort of then abandon her is that is that right that's right and I think there's echoes of that in society today I think that's why people ghost people they're dating and <laughs> it serves your ego a lot to know that someone's pining for you and can't get over you it it takes a big man to say you know this relationship is finished and shake your hand and leave the door and and shug is not a big man in the book and so he does cruelly abandon agnes and their children uh on the back of also puncturing all of our hopes um but i've always known addiction to be uh a thing that not only affects the person who is suffering from it but it has a scorching effect on the family and the community around the person and as you say, the three children are orbiting. They love their mother deeply, but they're sort of orbiting her as though she's this brightest star that then starts to collapse in on herself like a black hole. And they all have to face the, the choice of how far will you go to save the person you love the most before you have to save yourself. And Shuggy, as the youngest, is the one that's left not only with his mother, but also with the choices of his siblings. It's, yeah, it's, it's the, I mean, that relationship is so affecting obviously um particularly the relationship between shuggy and his mother and, the, and and i was very struck by a comment sort of towards the end of the book when when leek his brother sort of almost he sort of almost advises him to get out while he can and i think mm. shuggy just doesn't want to and can't for all the obvious reasons um you've spoken and you've been asked uh, i know a great deal about your own relationship with your mother who you mention in the acknowledgements and you talk about her alcohol addiction um, I'm not going to ask you kind of naff questions about to what extent you are Shuggy and to what extent Agnes is your mother, but I just wanted to talk a bit about the kind of the general cast and the, the, the general um, array of characters and to what extent they are the kind of people of your childhood and upbringing. Well, it's it's certainly a work of fiction, but uh, I did grow up as this, the queer son of a single mother. And my mum 
you know, was a really ambitious, beautiful woman, and I loved her very dearly. But there was she couldn't realize her dreams, and it sort of manifested into a deep hurt inside her, I think. And so she, alcohol was always a, a feature of my childhood from my earliest memories up until my mother lost her struggle with it when I was about 16. And, and so although the book is not based on my mother, it's based on my love for my mother and the feelings of how children have hope and an unconditional love for parents who are flawed. But it's also just a look, I understand uh, addiction, I understand poverty, having grown up on government benefits. I understand misogyny and homophobia because of the time and the place I grew up in. And so I wanted to bring those experiences as themes to the book. All the characters are fictitious in the book, uh, and but they're composites of real Glaswegians. One of the biggest compliments I get ever when someone from home reads the book and he says, oh, I know a Jinty or I know a Leek. And, and that's, that's when you know you've sort of made characters that feel very real to people. And part of the reason why the book took 10 years to write was because I was busy uh, sort of making a living elsewhere, but um, also because I love spending time with the characters and thinking about them and growing with them as a writer and really sort of trying to make them feel alive on the page. And I hope I've done that. You've certainly done that. And I was actually, I was, I was going to mention, Jin, is it Jinty McClinchy? Um, Ginty McClinchy, yeah. Ginty, <laughs> wonderful, because she's always sort of popping around for a wee drink and then sort of va vaguely robbing her friend or <laughs> just, just trying terror. to... She's a terror, Toby. She's a terror. She is, but I mean, you know, actually, you know, on the surface, it's 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 awful, of course it is, and Agnes is, is descending deeper and deeper into this very severe illness and Ginty is an enabler, but those bits are, they're funny. I mean, they're really funny. And there's that, you know, that tremendously amusing line about an awful thing where, where Agnes is raped and, and Ginty describes as having been a wee bit unlucky in love last night, I think mm. was the line, which is, you know, I mean, the, the, the kind of morbid humour that courses through this is, is absolutely wonderfully realised. And yeah, I think, uh, yeah, um, I, I can imagine Glaswegians, you know, reading it and, and if, you know, if, if they are seeing little bits of their world in there, I, I guess that must be tremendously um, gratifying to you. Um, I, I wonder what, to what extent you found this reception different in the UK in the US, do you do you find that whether reviewers or, or or even friends and other people you know have read it, have they kind of taken it slightly differently, or is is that not really the case at all? Yeah, it's it's been a different experience all over. Actually, um, it was first. Although I'm Glaswegian, I've lived in New York for a wee while now, so the book was first published in America uh, in February and published two weeks before the pandemic. So all these high hopes, and then it was <laughs> it was sort of swallowed. But what was what was refreshing about telling a Scottish story in America is critics and readers take the book on its successes or its failures and take it as a thing that stands alone. And suddenly when it came back to the UK, you can't help but intersect with conversations about class and history and myself and who I am and all of these other things. And, and so it's just been even fascinating to, to contextualize it in that way. But uh, has it been harder part... in a way, do you think, do you th to sort of contextualize it in that way? Was it was it kind of easier for you to kind of be taken at face value, as it were, when when when, when it was just American readers reading it? Or is that not really the case for you? It's been incredibly difficult, yeah. to be honest, with you, Toby, because people can't help but bring their own baggage and their own notions to it. And uh, just we, you know, the class system in the UK is is really a thing. And, and part of moving to America was sort of freeing myself from that, you know, yes. having grown up working class and poor, I felt limits and I felt exclusions and I felt that there were rooms I weren't, I wasn't allowed in and rooms I was. And America has been freeing in that way. And so to bring this story home and to be met with that um, has been startling. I didn't realize 
I, I was unprepared, I suppose. I've been unprepared for a lot of things, but that was one of them. The book it's described, you know, on, on the blurb as a, um, you know, a, a counterpart to the privileged Thatcher era London of Alan Hollinghurst, the line of beauty. And I, I know you've spoken about Hollinghurst in previous interviews mm. and how he's a, an influence on you. But one thing I really love is the fact that, you know, it's it's now also won the booker and it is showing this other side of, of 1980s Britain and actually the side that was more commonly felt and experienced by more of the people in this country. And I just there's something really kind of beautifully um I don't know, symmetrical about that for me. I don't know if that's something you've thought about or probably not. But I haven't noticed the symmetry, but I certainly, you know, Alan Hollinghurst is one of my favourite writers. I've devoured all of his books. But it always felt like another world to me, even though they're set at a time that I grew up in. And it's, again, it's that sort of life lived behind doors that I might never ever be able to go through. And even in a more micro way, everyone's agog at the crown right now and how forthright and determined Margaret Thatcher is. <laughs> and that also only shows one half of the conversation because, yes, she was a formidable woman and incredibly powerful, but we don't really get to see the consequences of her decisions. And in a way, Shuggy is about showing a rounder picture in that way um, and making sure that, you know, especially here in America, where everyone quite thinks Margaret Thatcher was this incredibly powerful character. She was, but you have to also understand uh, the, the results of her actions and her and her determination. Power can be problematic. <laughs> um, yeah, it can be incredibly problematic. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It took 10 years to write. Um, mm. And, you know, despite everything in the novel, the poverty, the addiction, the desperation the sense of this community having been hollowed out and abandoned by Thatcher. It's not an angry novel. I don't think anyone could classify it as an angry novel. And th this may be a difficult question to answer, but was it ever an angry novel? Did you ever kind of feel as you were approaching it and starting it that you kind of needed to work off some anger? Or did, did the sort of tone just fall naturally into place? No, because I don't feel angry about the time. I feel sad, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I feel a huge amount of loss. I I grieve for all the people who weren't supported enough to reach their potential or have the greatest lives they could. We know that unemployment was so high in the city. We know that drink and drugs and addiction swept in and that life expectancy is 14 years lower still today 
for many in Glasgow than it is for many in London. And so we know that there's that there's that gulf and that doesn't make me angry that just makes me incredibly sad and then through the loss of my own mother uh i feel nothing that's almost been 30 years now toby and i feel nothing but love and a, a desire to sort of memorialize her and all the formidable strong exhausting <laughs> terrifying women that surrounded her as well you know all these very complex characters and and so i just came at, it, at that but also i think because i come from outside of traditional publishing circles. I didn't come up through a creative writing workshop or an MFA as they call it in America. I wrote the book for myself in a lot of ways and I wrote it in isolation. And so it allowed me only to focus on what the characters needed and not what readers expected. Uh, and that was a good place to be because it allowed me to be brave. It allowed me to have no expectations of the work. And it also allowed me to hopefully show things with really a clear gaze, which I think I hope lends a dignity to the situation, even when the scenes are difficult or tough or horrible to look at. Absolutely, it's, it's dig, dignity is is one of the central qualities of this novel, and it's not just Agnes either. I mean, you can you can just feel it kind of coursing coursing through the book. Um, I I wonder how so you know you were, you 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 were writing it for yourself. How, how did the kind of first break? happen i mean I, I i gather you sent it off to a few agents and you know it wasn't immediately accepted where where did you get your first literary break well actually i can i can give you a, a real scoop toby and tell you the <laughs> from the background i haven't told anyone uh, probably about 2017 after working on it for 10 years i went to a christmas party in new york and we were all sort of uh you know everyone's just celebrating and i met a woman at the party and she said, what do you do? And I said, I work in fashion. I said, what do you do? And she says, I work in publishing. I just lost, she said, I just lost my job. I was an editor and I was fired. And I said, I've written a book. And <laughs> <laughs> that's the worst thing anybody at a party or that works in publishing wants to hear. And she just looked cornered. And I was so enthusiastic. And, uh, this poor person who is gone on to be a wonderful agent called Tina Pullman uh, was just terrified. <laughs> and so after sort of uh, spending some time and realizing I wasn't a lunatic, um, she said, I'll read your book and if you want, and I'll give you some feedback. It will take me six months. And I handed her the manuscript after 10 years. And so this was some days later. She called me about four hours later and she said, you have a you have a finished novel. And I was only looking for feedback around that. I, I was loving the writing of it so much. I wanted perspective so that I could write some more. Um, that was what it meant to me. And she said, no, no, you're finished. You're, <laughs> was that um, disappointing in some way? Were you, were you... <laughs> in a way, because uh, I write for the love of the craft of it. And so in a way, I was looking for just to make this even richer than hopefully it was. But uh, from there, I did what any debut novelist does. I, I queried, uh, Tina gave me some confidence. She gave me some encouragement. And then I queried agents, was rejected by a bunch of agents. And then when I finally landed with a wonderful agent, she sent the manuscript out and it was rejected. She told me it was rejected 20 times in America. Uh, but actually, it turns out it was rejected 32 times. <laughs> She's um, just trying to save you. <laughs> she was just saving me. She was saving. Me. She never lost faith, but I think perhaps I was wilting a little bit. But rejection is an important part of being a writer. I've subsequently been rejected for other things, <laughs> short stories, and you have to learn it. It's an important part of life, you know. And um, you know, you'll be rejected by readers, by critics, by agents, by uh, magazine submissions. And so the, the point is, is you have to write on and persevere and, and do what you're going to do. Um, but it took just one really brave editor at Grove Atlantic and, and everything that followed, 
here we are now at the Booker. And so was, was Tina actually the first person who read it? Had, had anyone else read the manuscript? Actually, Tina was the second the person second, who read it. The right. only other person was my husband. Right. So our, the only person who read it over 10 years was, <laughs> was my poor, long-suffering husband, <laughs> who was so glad to like have someone else read it finally and get me, <laughs> stop me bothering him. Have another cheerleader. Have um, another cheerleader. Extraordinarily, you are only the second Scot to win the Booker, which just mm. seems weird and I just don't really get it but um your predecessor James Kelman has been a big mm-hmm. influence on you as well I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about influence generally you've mentioned Hardy um Kelman mm-hmm. helped you to I don't know have a maybe not have a voice but gave, gave you a sense that that the that, you know the Scottish voice there was a place for it in, in you know in, in literary culture yeah I always like to start with a little sort of footnote and say Kelman and myself are not the only two Scottish writers. There's urgent, wonderful, terrific Scottish writing every single day. And I'm a huge fan of Graham Armstrong, Kirsten Innes, and Jenny Fagan, particularly as contemporary writers. Uh, But when I was a kid growing up, you know, the curriculum gave us the classics, which were a lot of, you know, middle-class English writers. And it was only when I got into my 20s that I was able to sort of turn around and seek out for myself queer voices, but also Scottish voices. And that's when I discovered writers like Kelman, Agnes Owens, George Frio, the wonderful Alan Warner. And that for me blew books open. It wasn't that I only read Scottish writing, but it's that it's important for all of us, no matter who you are, to have to read, to travel and see other worlds and places you don't see. But we also always need to see representation of ourselves on the page. And so Kelman was one of my first influences and How Late It Was, How Late is a remarkable book. I mean, it's a stream of consciousness about a Glaswegian alcoholic that wakes up blind in a prison cell and then spends the rest of this really chaotic weekend both navigating his new disability and getting around the city. It's an incredibly brave book. It's propulsive, it's it's violent, uh, but it's also incredibly wonderful. And so it's been a huge influence on me. Another thing you said uh, in relation to, to to the setting of your novel is that, that, that there's a danger of, well, maybe not a danger, but there's a that there could be a problem of poverty safari. You know, mm-hmm. middle class readers coming to to your world for a good gawp before returning to their smashed avocado or whatever it is they're returning <laughs> to. <laughs> but and I was thinking about that because it's it's really interesting. But then I was thinking, in a sense, all reading is a safari of some kind or another, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, we want to blur the lines between us and other people and, and all the rest of it, but we're always, to some extent, looking in. And I just wonder what what you hope readers will take away from Shuggy Bane and the kind of the view of that Glasgow that they get. You're right that all reading is a safari. And and it doesn't... The, the, the idea of a poverty safari doesn't isn't the fault of a, of a reader. It's a thing we're conditioned in society when you grow up maybe poor or there's trouble at home or there's things that are less seemly, you're told to keep it at home. And even within working class communities, if you if you share it and if you tell people even on your street about it, they're like, why are you telling people? You know, it's 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 rooted in shame. It's rooted in shame. And so I hope when I wrote the book, I wanted it to be as immersive as possible because I thought if I am going to share this story with people who come from a different background, then I want them to be in the room with Agnes and Shuggy and to feel it fully, uh, to hear it, to smell it, to touch it, and to really take the characters as much as any reader can as a care and a concern of their own, rather than just being able to be guided through it by an author who scoots you through it and sends you out the other end back to your own life. 
going to say you've been tremendously successful in that. I mean, it's such a cinematic book, amongst other things. I can, you know, I can smell and see and feel it, um, you know, in, in, in the bones. And I think that you, you've done that absolutely brilliantly. Thank you, Toby. That's a huge, that's a huge compliment. I think part of that also stems from the only tools I had, which came from a visual culture or a visual arts culture, and sort of trying to bring them to the page as a writer. But I, you know, as a reader, I love books where the characters feel like mine. I, where by the time you close the book, you wonder where they've gone and how they are and where they are in the world. And I'd written Shuggy with no great hopes for it, or also thinking it was a little bit of a historical novel, Glasgow in the 80s, surely time has moved on. But I wrote a scene about free school dinners in the book, <laughs> probably eight years ago, we're just living through a tumultuous time now. We know that people, even though progress is coming for so many, we know that so many people are being left behind every single day. And so it's not a historical novel at all. No. Um, um, do, do you recognise the Glasgow that you go you go back to now? I mean, does it? I'm sure much of it has changed, but is, is, is there a lot that you still recognise? I mean, that's a yes and a no answer. The city's had a huge resurgence and renaissance. Uh, it's always been a creative hotbed full of energy, humanity, empathy. And it's good to see it like continue in that way. But part of Shuggy is about accessibility and about making sure nobody feels left behind. And there are people in Leeds and Bradford and Detroit and Innerleithen and Glasgow that are still being left behind. And so there are still people that are that feel unseen in the same way that Agnes in the book feels sort of unseen. And, and here's a woman, the central character, who's bright, beautiful, determined, proud, and and yet um, a lot of people don't like to look or help her. You mentioned your um, your art school background. Um, mm. Literature is not your first career. Um, mm. Can you just talk a little bit about what you what you what else you've been doing for the past twenty years or so, or you know when you haven't been writing Shuggy Bain? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, well, I wanted to be a writer as a kid, but it was seen English was seen as incredibly academic and not something like boys from the south side of Glasgow should be doing. Um, and also my education was a riot because of addiction at home and because of what a lot of kids in the community around me were suffering through. And so I went into textiles, actually, um, which was a very good, proud Scottish industry in the early 90s. But by the time I graduated, actually, even that as an industry in Scotland was going through a difficult time. And I was incredibly fortunate um, to go and study my master's at the Royal College of Art and from there to be offered a position in New York. But as a young man with no parents and no sort of anchor, um, I was swept away. I didn't mean to leave Scotland. I didn't mean to leave the UK, but I was fortunate to be swept away to New York. And I've, I've been in New York for 20 years now working for uh, huge fashion brands, uh, some luxury houses, some high street retailers. But it was at the peak of my fashion career running uh, these brands that I thought, oh, I'm still unhappy and I've, I have to get back. I have to connect with the writer inside me and to, and to start writing. And so sat down to write short stories and the novel that you know is Shuggy Bain. And are you still working in fashion then? Is that still part of your day to day? I mean, I am not. I keep saying a definitive thing, but uh, <laughs> the truth is, is actually I'm not. About two years ago, when Shuggy was accepted as a manuscript, I thought I've been working so long towards this that I want to be present. I just want to be in it. And uh, so I stepped away from fashion then and I haven't returned since. And it's unlikely I will. And I hear you've already written a second novel, is that right? And possibly even working on a third? Or is this, is this misinformation? Uh, this is, it's not fake news. No, <laughs> it's, it's not fake news. <laughs> it's not fake news. Uh, I have, I, I wrote, I have completed my second novel, which again, I'm always writing about love and belonging and isolation. And this is about two really tender boys who are growing up in a tough place 
in 90s Glasgow and are in love with each other but are separated by uh, sectarian gang lines and territorial violence. Um, and then I'm starting, I'm, I'm working on some drafts of my third novel, which I hope also to be set in the very, very north of Scotland. Wonderful. And can you imagine writing about the States one day or does that still seem a kind of world away? I think so. I don't know why I'm going through my own life chronologically almost. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> I'm just probably not a bad thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm processing my own uh, index cards of trauma as they come up. And so, um, uh, yes, I think eventually there, I'm looking to, to do that. And so, although I'm a Scottish author, I hope to be a bit more intersectional than that. I'm also queer. I'm also American. I'm also these other things. Well, we all look forward enormously, I think, to the to the evolution of that career um, as you know, as you catch up with yourself, perhaps. Um, it's been really great to talk to you. Thank you so much. And I just want to say congratulations. Oh, thank you, Toby. It's been it's been amazing to talk to you today. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.